Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we are talking about the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, you've probably heard about this topic ad nauseum. Uh, one of the top 20 largest banks in the US can't fail and it not be all over the headlines. But what Justin and I really want to do in this podcast is talk about, okay, what are the big takeaways for oil and gas professionals? And we think there's three, right? Cash management, risk management, and duration matching. So, I, Justin, I think we should just skip all the context because there's going to be a million places to learn about what actually happened. Uh, but essentially, you know, one of the top 20 biggest banks in the US failed. Uh, and so there's a lot of repercussions and a lot of reasons why that happened. But let's talk about uh, takeaways for oil and gas professionals. Absolutely. So, first one, thinking about cash management. Uh, there's three things that go into cash management, and you know when you when you think about cash, your your purpose for cash is is first of all safety. Um, so if you have anything in your personal balance sheet uh, that's in cash, it should be there for purposes of safety. Um, and so when you think about cash management, important to understand three different things, making sure you're protected, making sure you're getting proper compensation. Uh, right now, interest rates are really terrific. Treasury rates are, are pretty incredible. So making sure you're getting proper compensation for your cash and then making sure you're not seeing those shiny interest rates and putting too much of your balance sheet in cash. It is great that you can make four and a half percent in the treasury right now. Uh, that's exciting. But four and a half percent is not what your 30 year goal should be. Um, so, so you should still have a, a very measured mindset with your balance sheet and make sure, Jared, to your point, that last point that we'll talk about in, you know, several minutes from now, duration matching, you've got to do that on a personal level as well. Uh, but where should we dive in from there? Yeah. So talking about cash management, right? There's a few important call outs. So FDIC insurance is something we talk about and everybody kind of ignores because they just assume banks are safe, but it's come back to the forefront, right? So $250,000 per person per bank, per account type. So if you have a joint account, of course, the coverage is half a million dollars, uh, which is great. But if you have substantial cash balances, you might have cash that is exposed, Right. And so, you know, at this point, uh, it remains to be seen whether anyone at Silicon Valley Bank is going to lose money uh, for their unsecured, unprotected cash balances. Uh, it's it wild because because of the, the funding pool that was Silicon Valley Bank, there's a large percentage of people that had unsecured funds on the uninsured funds on the platform. Um, so it remains to be seen if they'll get that. But, you know, if you ha- if you had cash, you don't want to be in the position where you're waiting for court hearings to determine whether or not you're going to have you're going to have your cash. So just it's no it's, it's just a no-brainer to make sure you're managing FDIC insurance properly. Um and I think it's also like an important reminder that the word like safer's investments do not mean riskless, right? Like this bank was perceived to be safer, right? It was it had a lot of like very service-oriented bank had a, had a big foothold in um in the tech startup world, and they were massive, right? And they, they appeared safe, right? But even if something appears safe, it's not riskless, right? So you need to understand the risk you're taking. And Justin, exactly like what you're talking about, 
I'm really excited for, you know, fixed income rates to be higher, but also too, right, on an inflation adjusted basis, the real yield on those isn't much more compelling than it was two years ago, right? Like, you know, we, we historically you can only get for the last decade, you can only get 2% in fixed income, but also inflation was only at 2%. So on a real basis, things haven't gotten really more compelling. So I, I think you need to measure measure your thoughtfulness and, and your risk management there. And, you know, I do want to call out, you mentioned FDIC insurance. If you have a lot of cash, you do need to make sure that you are spreading it among many banks to make sure you have FDIC insurance on as much of it as possible. Uh, you know, the negative example there would be if you have $10 million in cash and it's all at a small regional bank, well, that that is exposed. Uh, that is not perfectly safe. There is a tremendous amount of risk involved with that. Jared, I think it's also worth, we haven't mentioned this yet, Silicon Valley Bank is dominating the news. And part of part of this is unique. Part of this is extraordinary in a, in a negative uh, manner. But there's also a, a, a part of this that's, that's really quite commonplace. Uh, most people don't understand this. Most people don't realize this. Banks go under all the time. So that's not actually a unique event. It's just that, you know, this is the second largest bank collapse in U.S. history. I, I think that's correct. Um, and so that part of it is, is really unusual. That part of it is very unique. Uh, but small, county, state, regional banks do go under. That is something that does happen regularly. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of sarcastic tweets and memes about this for good reason. But it looks like Silicon Valley Bank, uh, you know, to some degree uh, will get bailed out. A lot of small municipal county banks do not get bailed out. Um, and so, you know, we want to reiterate that FDIC insurance protection, uh, if you do not have FDIC uh, protection on your cash, yeah, you, you should understand that banks can go under and they do go under. Um, and Jared, have we talked about treasuries at all yet? No, I mean, that was the other thing I was going to call out, right? This is a point in favor of the treasury camp because when you buy treasury bills or T-note, treasury notes, those are backed by the full faith and credit of the US government, right? So, and there's no there's no purchase cap like I-bonds, right? So that's the other thing is, you know, if, you're, if you have a certificate of deposit at a bank, uh, you might be getting a, a yield, but they're probably using it to buy uh, T-bills and then just paying you for the privilege of... Uh, of, of buying those T-bills and, and just giving you a fraction of the interest you could earn buying them directly, right? So this is, you know, managing FDIC insurance is great, but also, you know, maximizing your yield uh, in a very risk, risk appropriate way. Uh, treasury bills could be great for that. Yep, that's well put. And so, you know, again, that, that call out there is treasuries do not have FDIC limits associated with them. Um, so if you've got $10 million, you're way over those FDIC limits. Treasuries do not face those same limitations. You do have the full faith and credit of the U.S. government backing the entire amount that you put into treasuries. Um, anything else that we need to cover on that topic? No. And here, here's the thing. Silicon Valley Bank, it looks like there's going to be a bailout. It looks like a lot of the depositors are going to get their money back. But it's just, it's an avoidable risk that's not worth the return, right? Like the, the the ease of having everything in one account is not worth that potential risk if you have substantial cash management. It's just one of those things, get get your cash right is what I would say and know, and know the risks. Um, Justin, let's talk about like 
the risk management component? Because I think this is really interesting and there's a lot of parallels with our oil and gas demographics. So one of the things I want to talk about is like the idea of periodic rebalancing. I, I can't I, I can't pull up the charts easily because uh, Silicon Valley Bank is no longer publishing. Your stock data is harder to access because uh, they're going through chapter 11 and all that stuff. But um, if I, my memory serves me correctly, it trounced the S&P from 2010 to 2022. And the S&P did great. So uh, Silicon Valley Bank, this wasn't a, this wasn't some obscure part of the market that was just kind of seedy or underperforming. This was a hot, hot stock that had done really well. And so I say that to remind people that like risk management is an ongoing thing, right? So what happens is if you had a position in Silicon Valley Bank and it and it appreciated, right? Prudent risk management would tell you to to take some chips off the table and right size the position. But had you not done that, that position would have grown and grown and grown while simultaneously the future prospects become became worse and worse and worse. Right? So Thinking about that related to the portfolio you're managing, if, if you have a concentrated uh, oil and gas portfolio and it's it's done well, you know, a lot of our a lot of our clients, or we have clients who say, hey, it's done well, I want to continue to let it ride. I, I would say the opposite should be true. If 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 it has done well recently, it's that, that you know, and but you still have the same level of conviction, realize some of those, you know, take some chips off the table, resize that position, make sure it's appropriate, right? Because otherwise not touching things, it drifts and it becomes a huge potential, you know, a huge piece of the pie, both on the good side and the bad side. And so, you know, I, it's important that we take a step back and remember that this wasn't an institution that was a penny stock that was thinly traded and speculated and had a ton of short sellers. There were professional investors that were re- reiterating their hold or outperform rating weeks before this happened, right? So like it, it wasn't, it, in hindsight, it was completely obvious, but it wasn't obvious leading up to it. Uh, and and you had probably made a great amount of money had you been a long term uh, investor up until this point. And so, just just a reminder of hey, you really have to right size your portfolio. And risk management's an ongoing thing. And you know, it, if a stock does well, you want to continue to hold it. But you know, it's already realized some of its potential, so you want to de risk your portfolio. So risk management is really really a prudent part of 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 the portfolio management process. What would you add there, Justin? Yeah, you know, we like to say that. Uh bad things can happen to good companies. And one of the interesting parts about investing is you're not always going to know whether you're invested in a good company or bad company. Right, Jared? I mean, what does that even mean? In 1998, uh, a lot of people thought that they were investing in a good company with Enron. And then it turns out that it was a bad company. But I like to I like to say, you know, we have so many clients in Houston that the Enron example always comes up. Um, and it is a poignant example of why financial independence does require some serious diversification. If you have an outsized position, we've done this for multiple clients where we, we kind of put an asterisk by a highly concentrated position and figure out what kind of income can be derived from the portfolio ex- excluding that concentrated position. And so again, you know, for, for real financial independence, there does need to be diversification. But that Enron example, Jared, that's an example of a bad thing happening to a bad company, right? And we like to always remember bad things can also happen to good companies. And so prudent risk management makes sure that, hey, if something really rough happens to one company, 
What does that do to your balance sheet? What does that do to your life plans for the next 10, 20 years? It's a simple question. And, you know, you hear about it all the time. It's elementary. It's 101. Be diversified and stuff. But, yeah, it, it, it really is a, a matter where your personal balance sheet needs to be thoroughly reviewed. And, and we need to understand, hey, what is at risk if something bad happens to one company? And I would say Silicon Valley is in the other camp, like not opposite of Enron, where it's like, I wouldn't say it was a bad company full of bad actors. It was a good company that was slightly mismanaged that had a bank run, right? And like there there are slightly mismanaged companies that are, you know, doing exponentially better than not having bank runs. And there's probably banks that are in worse financial position. Um, and, you know, SVP had, a, SVP had crazy percent of uh, people with way over FDIC limits and they were concentrated to one sector. So they weren't super, super diversified. And so like there were definitely some shortcomings in how the bank was run, but you know, all in all, it wasn't people. It wasn't a fraudulent company. Um, so I totally agree with you, Justin. That bad things do happen to uh, to good companies. And the other thing I think is like a good reminder for oil and gas clients is like understanding company risk versus sector risk, right? So like a lot of times we'll have clients with equity awards that vest and oils at, at a temporarily depressed price, and they'll say, "Hey, I want to continue to hold my stock," and that's fine, assuming you know you're comfortable with it going to zero. Um, but the, the follow-up question should be: Hey, are you owning the stock because you're bullish about your company's positioning in midstream in you know whatever sector of the oil and gas service economy that you're exposed to, or are you just ba- banking on a rebound in oil? Right? Because if that's the case, I, w- I would remove that that single stock risk and get exposure to the sector. Right? So there's ways to play that uh, without the single company exposure, right? So like Silicon Valley Bank is, you know, you could have created a really awesome thesis where, hey, interest rates are rising. Banks are going to be able to make more money on their cash. Um, so I'm so I'm bullish. And two ways a Silicon Valley Bank employee could have expressed that as I could have said, hey, I'm bullish on, you know, regional banking over the next 20 years. So I'm going to leave all my company stock as is, or they could say, hey, I'm, I'm bullish on regional banking over the next 20 years. I'm going to get exposure to a regional banking ETF, right? And that and that ETF has also done worse, but there's still value versus it being valueless. So in terms of, you know, thinking about the concentrated bets you're making, you know, of course, size them appropriately. So don't bet the farm on it. But if you do have a preference to hold, you know, some of your oil and gas stock as it vests, discern why and figure out, okay, is, is having the line item risk really worth it? That's a great point, Jared. Quick 30 second example that, you know, everyone will resonate with here. 2015, 2018, pretty rough years for a lot of super major oil and gas companies. Uh, Jared, it's totally logical for someone in 2019 to say, hey, oil and gas has had a pretty awful decade, but this is a, you know, this is a, a service in the world that is truly essential. And surely, surely these stocks are going to have a comeback. That would have been very logical. But you just mentioned two ways that you can act on that. You could buy an individual company. And you know what, Jared? For a lot of them, hey, if you bought in 2019, 2020, um, kind of right after the pandemic when oil was in a horrible spot, uh, you probably came out really well and you saw enormous gains. But there were some oil and gas companies that went under. And so you could have instead bought an oil and gas ETF, um, an energy ETF, and had exposure to a bunch. 
And yes, as individual names go bankrupt and go under, that ETF is not going to be spotless, right? It, but your your head's going to be over water and you're going to survive. Yeah. So, and, and like there's a spectrum too, right? Like if you own concentrated stock in a super major, right? Little more, the range of outcomes should be a little tighter than if you own a, you know, or if, if, if you're getting paid in stock for your exploration, uh, your thinly traded exploration company, right? That, that has a really low market cap. So also it's not, you know, all or one, but, but I do think the principle is just a really sound principle. It's like, okay, diversify where you can and understanding the risk you're taking and what you're actually betting on. Um, cause we get that there's a cyclical nature to oil and we have clients, you know, Hey, I want to get out of it at this price, at this price, at this price. But you know, the question is, okay, is this worth the single company stock risk? Or are you banking on your company's execution or a rebound in oil prices? Um, so those are two things about risk management. Justin, anything really before we talk about the last piece of duration, duration matching? I think let's dive into duration matching. It's super interesting with SVB and just has so many takeaways. Yeah, it does. Because like this is really like the thing that killed Silicon Valley Bank, right? They had, other than the run, right? The run is like really hard for any bank to navigate, to be clear. Uh, and venture capital telling all of their seed companies to pull funding. It was like a coordinated bank run, the scale at which we've never seen, right? If you think about the time there was a bank run this severe, it was you know, 50 plus years ago when the internet wasn't a thing. So the internet just made this bank run insane. So I, I'd argue that it'd be really tough for any bank to avoid a run of this scale, even if they're a really well-run bank. But one of the things that crushed Silicon Valley Bank was the duration mismatch. So one of the things that they did is they extended on the yield, they extended on the yield curve. They bought longer term uh, debt instruments to increase their yield. The problem is when rates rise, the current debt that they own becomes less valuable. Because you know, if you were getting 2% and now the market's at 3%, you have to adjust the price of your securities to reflect that new 3% rate which is not a big deal if you hold a bond to maturity because you get, you get, you know, par value back, which is so, so, you know, temporary price decline. But if you're holding it till maturity, all is well, because you're going to get the yield that you, you know, that you planned when you bought the security. The problem with Silicon Valley Bank is all of, uh, they had a substantial fixed income position that uh, depreciated in value because rates had risen and their fixed income had become less valuable and they weren't liquid enough. So what happened is they had to sell this depressed fixed income and realize those losses. So the unrealized losses became realized losses due to a liquidity crunch. Justin, what what does this have to do with oil and gas professionals? I think it's arguably financial planning. It's, It's the first base. It's the first foundation of financial planning. And so if you have events in your life and you have expenses coming up, that should dictate how you invest. Uh, I think I've said this on the podcast before, but every investment firm will give you some sort of risk questionnaire if you want to invest with them. And there's merit to that. It it is important to understand what's your capacity, what's your appetite for risk, but far, far more important than your personal feelings on risk, way more important than that is your time frame. Your time frame is a dictator with absolute power over how you invest. Um, simple example there, Jared, if you are in a 529 and you have a 15 year old that's going to go to college at, at age 18 and you are paying for college, that is your plan. Well, that 529 absolutely should not have 100% stock. It should be duration matched, 
right? So if if your first college bill is going to be in three years, and then you're going to have some college expenses in four, five, and six years, the portfolio should reflect that. No one has any idea what the stock market's going to do in a three-year period. And so, no, that 529 should probably not be 100% stock. Um, retirement is another example. But again, it could kind of be a perfect example on the flip side. If you are 62 and you're going to retire in 18 months, well, that's it's it's a little bit tricky. You need to duration match. In 18 months, you're not going to need all of your portfolio. So by no means should all of your portfolio go to cash, bonds, treasuries. Uh, but there should be enough for months 19 through month 60. So for the next five years, there should be enough that is 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 there in your portfolio to provide for the income you need it within the next five years without dipping into equities. Because over long periods of time, we have a great deal of confidence that, that stocks will do well for greater than five-year periods. We have no idea what they're going to do in two, three, four-year chunks. So duration matching your personal balance sheet is critical. What would you add there, Jared? Yeah. I mean, Justin, to go on what the example you were giving, you know, you say, hey, I'm retiring in 16 months from an oil and gas company. I'm going to put all of my 401k in a more conservative allocation. Like that might not be consistent with your income plan, right? One of the things we help people with a lot is like, hey, let's let's deplete taxable assets. Let's get let's fill up the Roth buckets. Okay, let's spend down equity awards and minimize your concentrated stock risk. So also figuring out, okay, like, you know, you see here, four hundred one k retired. Oh, it needs to be conservative, but it also needs to reflect your income plan because if the majority of assets are coming from a taxable brokerage account from years one through ten of retirement, then the and you don't plan to touch the four hundred one k for a decade, then. Even though you're retiring in 16 months, you're probably going to want a really aggressive allocation for that specific account, right? So it needs to include, okay, hey, what's my risk tolerance? And then also kind of duration match and understanding that, you know, the order of operations of how you might make distributions uh, from accounts, right? And Justin, we've talked about this in previous episodes, but what will kill you is not temporary price declines. It is being a net seller when prices are down. Right. And so by having an appropriate amount of fixed income and cash, it just ensures you can weather the storm, right? The inevitable storm. Uh, Cause, you know, there are down years in the market. Last year was a great example. Uh, and we know there's going to be more down years in the market, but we know that if we can uh, duration match the portfolio and ensure that we're a net buyer of equities or, or maybe even a net neutral holder of equities, just not a net seller of equities, uh, that over a long period of time, you're going to be compensated handsomely and that gives you the best odds of long term financial success. Jared, I, I want to reiterate something you just said. Um, if you are facing retirement in the next year or few years, duration matching is not taking your portfolio and getting it ultra safe. That would actually be the opposite of duration matching. Um, if you want to leave your job and live off of your investments, if that's a goal of yours, well, then you have to have a big chunk of your portfolio that's properly invested for income 10 years from now, 25 years from now. And you just mentioned this, Jared, a market crash is not remotely a, a big risk if you plan properly over a 10, 25 year period. Inflation is a mega risk. Running out of money is a mega risk. And so it, it's you've really got to match your durations well. But I also want to give one last example and thought there. Jared, any idea what the S&P 500 did from March of 2008 for the next year or 12 months, 6, 12 months or so? 
Uh, I don't know, down or flat. Or sorry, uh, I said March, but uh, I think yeah. So middle, if if you just go 2008 at the start of the crash, uh, so late summer or fall. Um, but I'm also I, I I'm mixing up what happened. Well, but, just tell me what happened then. <laughs> the the market goes down almost 50 percent, right? And so the market absolutely craters. Biggest crash since World War II that we've seen. Any idea? If you just invested with horrible timing and you put in a million dollars right at that point, any idea what your annual return would have been if you just let it ride for the last 15 years? Got to be got to be at least 12%. So it is just under that. It's about 10%. Wow. Incredible. Um, yeah, if you top ticked it. So if you put your money in at the peak, that's what yes, you're saying? Yes, wow. absolute worst timing possible. So you put your money in, you lose almost 50% within, you know, within less than a year. Uh, but if you had the available funds to take care of short-term expenses that allow you to stay invested, you get a reap unbelievable compound interest. So you make an enormous amount of money, even if you have terrible, terrible timing. Um, you're, you're, you come out totally fine in that scenario, as long as you duration match properly. Yeah, and you got a duration match on both ends, right? So don't don't put yourself in a position where you don't, we're not liquid enough, where you need to be a seller. But then also on the duration matching on the other end, don't have a portfolio so conservative that it's that you're going to deplete it, right? And so, um, Justin, that's really the three things that I think we we can learn. Or and a lot of these aren't new lessons, but just reminders that come back to the front and center. Uh, things that are just seem like blocking and tackling, and they're so easy to forget, but they're so important, right? Manage your cash manage your risk and have a portfolio that matches the duration of you, your goals, your life, and your future cash flows. Um, that's all we got. Uh, love to hear from our listeners podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks. And we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.